Well, good morning. If you got your Bibles with me, please turn to Psalms 51. Psalms 51, as we finish up Psalms this morning, we are going to be looking at verses 13 to 19. And uh, the title of the sermon is The Results of Mercy. Last week, we looked at the application of mercy. And I know we've all slept and worked since last week. So uh, just keep comfortable as you find the text and let's review just for a few minutes. What you're going to see this morning in the, in the text itself as we close out Psalms 51 uh, is a little bit of a shift, a display of the results of mercy summarized as selflessness. That is a genuine concern for the restoration, renewal, and joy of others as well as David himself. And so uh, let's just remind ourselves, verse 1, Psalms 51, verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. And so we see the basis of why we can cry out and why we should cry out for mercy. Remember what had happened. David had committed murder and adultery. He had went almost a year, and some things a year, uh, in non-repentance, and Nathan the prophet had to confront him, and this psalm is a response to that confrontation. And so he cries out first to God. So this is at the heart of prayer to God in response to this sin that he has not only committed, but that has been harboring for almost a year. Uh, we see in verse 3 and 4, if you notice, and even down into 5 and 6, that he notices his own the depth of his sin and his own inability to do anything about it even saying that in sin did my mother conceive me or in other words i've got a deep problem i was born in sin i am sinful in my nature and in verse 7 then we see him crying out and desiring to be restored and renewed and in verse 8 and following, we see he's lost the joy of his salvation. He has not lost his salvation. He has lost the joy of it. And so he asked God to restore that joy. And, and now we enter into today in verse 13 to 19. So let's, let's read that together. Uh, verse 13 says this, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray together. Lord, as we look at your word, would you grant your people not only the confidence to know that you will renew, restore us and bring our joy back when we fall in sin, but you earnestly desire for us to long for that in others' lives that are around us. Give us that 
desire. Lord, may we delight in what you delight in. May we rejoice in what you rejoice in this morning as we look at your word. Amen. And so let's, let's just apply the New Testament to this understanding of the results of mercy, the results of mercy in our life. Once they are applied, what does it look like? So turn with me to Jude. Real easy to find Jude. Just find Revelation, the last book in the Bible. Back up one, just one chapter in Jude. Uh, look at Jude. Look at verse 20. Now, as you find Jude, the context of this, of this letter is false teaching. False teaching has come into the church, and some people have been deceived by it. And so people who are deceived by false teachers and their false teaching, how should we respond to them? What should we do? Um, this is important in context of how we apply this word into our life. Look at verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, notice this, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This waiting for the mercy is the return of Christ. This is mercy from the beginning of our salvation to the return. Here we see the return of Christ being called mercy. But notice verse 22. Notice now with the outward of results of mercy. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others... Show mercy with fear, hating even that their garments stained by the flesh. So we see here in this text in the New Testament, the result of mercy in our own life is that we rescue and bring mercy into the lives of others. So last week we said that this non-repentance in David's life was dangerous. It's not safe to live in non-repentance. And, and here in this week, we're going to see it's not safe for those around us. Our sin impacts those around us. It did David, it does us. And so, the good news, the hope of the message today is in our main idea. The Lord graciously works through those who cry out for mercy. So he uses the broken. He uses us who sin, who cry out for mercy and are restored. These are those who use. So that's good news. We see first that that the result of mercy is active disciple-making. Look with me at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Notice first, it says, then I will. So remember what we've talked about. Last week we looked at seven ways or seven imperatives that the, how the Lord will apply mercy into David's life. And now... He's saying, after you have applied this mercy, then I will. So we see David, even in the midst, he is actively pursuing restoration, renewal, and joy. Remember, this is his response to, the Nath to Nathan's rebuke. His mind is already thinking forward to his people. I love this quote. I believe it was from Spurgeon who said, there is a joyous connection between a joyous faith and an infectious one. That this joyous faith that comes from being restored is infectious to others that are around us. This is a simple principle. When you experience restoration, when you experience renewal, when you experience joy, when you experience forgiveness, 
you will want to lead others in it as well. So what does this mean, your ways? So let's look at this biblically from a big picture, and let's, then we'll hone it in a little tighter. Turn with me to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 26, and let's look at verse 16. Deuteronomy 26 and verse 16. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. To verse 17, you have declared today that the Lord is your God, that you will walk in his ways, keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules, and will obey his voice. So that's the big understanding of what your ways is, but he in context is taking that and he's honing it in even tighter. He speaks of God's ways is quite probably most likely he's referring to in context is how God deals with sinners. That God does not simply leave those who sin to themselves. He confronts them. He intervenes. He even afflicts them in their sin in order to, that they may be restored. His desire for them is that their sin not only be atoned for, but they be completely removed, that they confess it, that they agree, that they repent, and that they be restored. And so he wants to teach sinners that way in which God works to restore and to justify the sinner. How about... In the New Testament, our new covenant that we live in, we looked at this text last week, Romans 4. Romans 4. We looked at Romans 4 last week, an understanding of joy. But notice Romans 4, verse 7, in the sense of God's ways and what we need to teach others. It says, blessed are those who lawless deeds are forgiven. Blessed are those whose sins are covered Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. So here we see what we want to teach as we make disciples is how it is through the cross that our sins are forgiven, that our sins are completely covered, and that God will never count our sins to our account again. That's good news. We need to teach other people about that. We just don't need to assume that people understand it. When most of the time in the pulpits, of the American church, repentance is seldom even mentioned. Once David experienced it, he wanted to communicate the goal that people would return to the Lord and follow him. Remember, our commission from the Lord says that we make disciples through teaching others to observe all that Jesus commands. So David's heart was simple. My fall will ultimately lead to the restoration of others. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that we can teach others through our own failures? You see, for that to happen, we must have had mercy applied in our life. We must have had the guilt and shame removed. So here's what I want us to do for a few minutes. If you're taking notes, uh, write down one person, just one person that you desire to follow Christ, that you desire to have restored, that you desire to walk in repentance. Just write one person down. 
And then once that person is down on your paper and you you visualize who that person is, can I ask you a question? Are you actively pursuing that person? Are you actively discipling that person? That is the results of mercy. The result of mercy is active disciple making, and it is also authentic worship. We could almost have laid this message out with one point, everything following on that the results of mercy is active disciple making. But I also could have laid out the whole sermon as the result of mercy is authentic worship because you see worship and disciple making go together. They are inseparable. They're two sides of the same coin. And so as we look at this, then we are reminded of a couple things. First, ultimately what we said at the beginning, we see in, in verses 14 to 17, a man whose faith is growing, even as he prays to the Lord. Our faith grows one way by the exercise of prayer. David is praying. His faith is growing. We know this because he's dealing more plainly with his sin before God. Look at verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. So he's dealing with his sin plainly, but yet his confidence is, is more than, than at the beginning. Here's what he says, And my tongue, Lord, will sing aloud your righteousness. And so we see, let's look first at this word righteousness. The word righteous here in verse 14 is not as much the righteousness of God as in his, his character as it is in God's faithfulness, the word righteousness, in his justification of sinners. God is faithful to justify, to restore, to pursue, to intervene, and to lead sinners to repentance and faith in him. And David desires to preach those ways, God's ways to wandering and wounded people, and now he will sing of God's faithfulness in their rescue, in his rescue and in their rescue. Look at verse 15. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Interesting here. Sometimes it's hard to see this in, uh, in your Bible. When you read, you see, O Lord, you may think that's Yahweh. That's actually Adonai there which means master. He is saying, master, open my lips. Or in other words, I'm not, I can't open my lips on my own. I need you to open them. I need you to open them. And when you do, I will declare your praise. Spurgeon put it this way, great mercies call for great songs. The word declare here means to state emphatically and authoritatively. So you, you see, if we back up for a minute, that this is inseparable from disciple-making, authentic worship of declaring your praise is with our mouths stating the faithfulness of God emphatically, publicly, authoritatively. Here's the reality. Because of his sin, because he has harbored his sin, because of the shame and guilt 
and now grief and even horror of his sin, he is shut up within himself. We've all experienced this, whether it's your sin or whether it's sin done to you, that it can clam you up, trapped inside your own self, unable to free yourself, unable to open your mouth, unable to speak. It leads towards isolation and then destruction. We have all been there, or we will all be here. As I thought about this, the results of mercy being that his mouth will freely and publicly and authoritatively declare the praise and the faithfulness of the Lord. I thought about an experience that we experienced. I may have shared this story with you before. Um, when we were adopting and we were stuck in the Congo for a couple months, we were in an apartment with another man who was adopting another little boy, and it was just him. His wife was at home. And he was here with us in this little apartment. We were all trapped in there together. We couldn't really leave. And his little boy was named Elvis, and they named him Oliver. So we called him Oliver Elvis. And, and he was a boy, when they brought him in, he had absolutely no emotions. His, he was limp. His arms were by his side. His eyes were stared, just a dead stare. When we would set him in the floor, we would have to sort of prop him up. We would put toys around him, and, all, and our kids were running all over the place. He would stare straight forward. His hands would not move. When he was hungry, he would not cry. He was literally trapped inside himself. And we were there day after day after day, and we experienced not within just a matter of days. His eyes began to look around. His head began to move as he realized the people that was around him. And, and then one day, his hand reached out and grabbed a little truck that was in front of him. And he picked it up and as if he was seeing it for the first time in his life. And we watched this little boy literally to become alive. Didn't take long when he was just squealing. And I know none of us like to hear babies crying all the time, but this was a precious sound for, you see, he had not cried because no one ever had come to him and no one had ever met his needs and he had no one to depend on him, but yet his daddy had been there. His daddy had been there when he could not cry, when he could not play. His daddy was there. So we saw this release. This is what David is saying, Lord, you open my lips and I will declare and no one will be able to stop me. Look with me at verse 16. Just a shocking thing. Just think about being a Jewish person and hearing this. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. Second line, basically saying the same thing. You are not pleased with the burnt offering or I would give it. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. This word broken is important here. It means bruised or even crushed. So turn with me. I want you to see this. I was just studying Ezekiel in my own personal Bible study and, and saw this this past week. Ezekiel 6 verse 9 
How does God respond to the sin of his people? Something God doesn't respond. He is emotional. And I want you to just see this. I'm not going to interpret it. I'm just going to read it. If, he, if Ezekiel 6, 9, remember, if you look at the big picture, God is telling his people that judgment is coming. He is telling them what's ahead of them if they do not repent. In verse 9, he says, How I have been broken over their whoring hearts, that they have departed from me, and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. Notice the word broken there in reference to how God sees the sin of his people. That is the same word that we see in verse 17. That David's delight has become what God's delight. David despises now what God despises. He, now he is broken over his own sin before God. Notice there's another word here. The word is contrite. It is a different word that means almost the same thing. It means to crush, but it also means to be sorrowful. To be means sorrow. In other words, put these together. It is humility before God and brokenness over sin that are genuine expressions of confession and repentance. David knew it. That unless we are broken, unless we are sorrowful over our own sin and to humbly submit ourselves to the Lord, we have not genuinely repented. And yet, as we see these words of crushing and sorrowful, we might ask the question, are you saying that God delights for me to be sorrowful? And I would humbly say that God delights in you being humble. God requires of us a yielded spirit. And what that produces, the result of mercy in our life is willing obedience. Just listen to what Romans 6, 1 and 2 says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So when we experience God's delight, we begin to delight in God's ways. So we could ask the question, how do we break our own heart? over our sin. Like, how can I reach in there or someone else reach in there for me and actually break my heart of what breaks God's? How, how does that work? Well, praise the Lord, we don't have to worry about our opinions here for God's word tells us in Jeremiah 23 and verse 29, just listen to what it says. Is not my words like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. How can we delight in what God delights in? How can we despise what God despises? How can we experience brokenness over our sin? We commit ourselves to prayer and we pour ourselves in God's word and he will begin to give us a heart like his. This is what David is doing. He's crying out to his God in prayer and he's trusting in God's word. And he is beginning to be broken over the things that breaks the heart of God and delights in the things that he delights. And so we see then the third aspect is all through this last section. The result of mercy is a concern for God's people. Psalms 
51 and verse 18 almost seems out of place because all of a sudden we're reading about these things and the heart that pleases God. And verse 18 says, do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And you're like, where in the world did that come from? Why all of a sudden is he talking about Jerusalem and the walls? And Well, there's a couple of opinions here. I want to give you both of them and, and, and tell you sort of the way that we're looking at it here. One is that David actually, this is part of this original Psalms, and that's the way I see it. That's the way many uh, scholars and, and uh, theologians see it, and that's what it looks like to me. But many people believe this. the last two verses were added by God's people while they were in exile. They had been through the same thing David did. They, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, and so verse 18 and 19 were things that they added in as they looked forward and they prayed for mercy that God would bring them back to Jerusalem, that they would re- rebuild the walls and allow them then to be able to worship him. And that's, that's absolutely a possibility. Um, either way, we want to first see that sin is ultimately against God, but sin has affected the people of God, or in other words, sin does not affect only me. It affects others. By his sin, he not only weakened his own devotion and his own relationship with the Lord, but because he was the king of this people, he had weakened their devotion and their relationship with the Lord as well. And so we could see this wall image here is almost a metaphor. This hole in the walls was made by all my sin. His sin made it. You see, secret sin knocks holes in the walls of our families, our marriages, and our churches. Unconfessed sin quenches our worship and stifles our mission. And he feared that he would be like Achan. Remember Achan, that God told the army once they went into a city to devote everything to destruction, but Achan took some of the spoils from the land and he kept them. You remember what happened to Achan and his family, that this sin not, did not just affect him. His sin affected the whole people of God. This is what he is saying. This has absolutely everything to do with worship, and we see him coming back to this issue of worship. And he uses, I love this, he uses this same phrase, then will you, then will you delight in right sacrifices. The heart must be right before the sacrifice can be right. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You see, worship is the fruit of our devotion to the Lord. It is not a substitute for it. It is not as if we can live how we want to live through the week and then tack Sunday worship or some other kind of worship expression onto that as a substitute for everything else that we're doing. No, this is what we do in our whole life. In other words, listen closely. My Sunday worship, that is our corporate worship together, is the fruit, it is the culmination of my weekly worship, my weekly devotion to God. It is not our responsibility as pastors or worship leaders to fill your cup 
your weekly, regular devotion and worship to God in your whole life culminates when we gather together. Notice the phrase, the words here, whole burnt offering. That is a burnt offering that is entirely consumed. That is a picture of complete and absolute surrender and offering to the Lord. Remember Romans 12.1? Romans 12.1 could really almost be a summary of this text, of this message today. Remember what Paul said? Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. All of our life is worship. So the results of mercy is a life that is devoted and given to Christ and authentic worship in our everyday life, which includes making disciples and includes absolutely everything that we do and say. There's another second point. I don't want you to miss this, that the result of mercy leads to a extravagant, even what we would say a radical sacrificial generosity. So notice this, go back to the text, the third line in uh, Psalms 51 and verse 19. It says, then bulls will be offered. You see, a bullock were the largest and most costly sacrifice. This would have been considered radical sacrificial. This is what the result of mercy is. You don't need a pastor beating you over the head to give, give, give. All I need you to do is point you to the cross so that you see the radical, sacrificial generosity put on display in Christ redeeming, rescuing, and restoring us. And every time we sin, we get this generosity and on display again as Christ forgives us and restores us, and he calls us to live this way. How do we motivate each other to live lives of spiritual worship? We have said it today. We actively make disciples. We authentically worship, and we express a genuine care for each other's holiness. So then, sometimes we ask, so what? Let's ask, so then. It's too responses today or two questions rather i want to let's let's think about for a minute the one is in in light of not just this sermon but all that we have said about psalms 51 will i cry out and return to the lord you see david's greatest fear came true that after him came kings that did not follow yahweh and the wicked leaders led the people and the people followed their wicked leaders, and the Lord's disciplined hand came on them, and they were sent into exile. And it was there they became aware of their sin, and they cried out to the Lord, and he came. This is the grand story of redemptive history. We sin, we cry, and he redeems. Listen to Lamentations 340 as in the midst of exile and despair, the encouragement was this, verse 40, let us test 
and examine our ways and return to the Lord. And also today, we challenge each other with this question, will I pursue the wandering and the wounded? What's my motivation for that? What drives me to abide by the spiritually Oliver of this day who will give us nothing in return and seems from an earthly perspective hopeless? Why would I pursue them? Well, notice our Jesus is our motivation. You remember the lost sheep. Listen to God's word today. See that, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see my face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of that one who went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And if it's not his, it shouldn't be ours. You see, our motivation for pursuing the wandering and the wounded is that we love them because we are loved. We are gracious to them because we have been and we are being filled with grace. We pursue them because we have been pursued. We seek them because it is us that have been found. And in John chapter 20 and verse 21, Jesus said to his disciples, as the Father sent me, so I send you. So then based off of this, we call for God's people to respond, either to turn in repentance or to rescue the perishing. And now we are gathered together in worship. And so we're, what we're going to do is two things now. We are going to stand in just a minute and we are going to worship the Lord for his grace. And then I will invite you to come to the Lord's table and to remember the one who made us his children. Let's pray. Lord, now this is your word. We have heard it. We have received it. Now, Lord, may we act on it for the glory of your name. Lord, now receive our worship as a pleasing sacrifice to you in Jesus' name. Amen.